Test. Raal Dahl. Boy. Tales of Childhood. Chapter 1. Starting Point. Papa and Mama. My father, Harald Dahl, was a Norwegian who came from a small town near Oslo called Sarpsborg. His own father, my grandfather, was a fairly prosperous merchant who owned a, sh a store in Sparsborg and traded in just about everything from cheese to chicken wire. I am writing these words in 1984. That's three years before Daddy was born. What? 1984. I think, I think your dad was born then. Yeah, my daddy was born. Noel was born then. But that was before I was born. So I bet he heard, heard this. This is a very old book. It is a very old book. Okay, back to the book. I am writing these words in 1984, but this grandfather of mine was born, believe it or not, in 1820 shortly after Wellington had defeated Napoleon at Waterloo. If my grandfather had been alive today, he would have been 164. My father would have been 121. Both my father and my grandfather were late starters so far as children were concerned. When my father was 14, which is still more than 100 years ago, he was up on the roof of the family house replacing some loose tiles when he slipped and fell. He broke his left arm below the elbow. Somebody ran to fetch the doctor, and half an hour later the gentleman made a, a majestic and drunken arrival in his horse-drawn buggy. He was so drunk that he mistook the fractured elbow for a dislocated shoulder. We'll soon put this back in place, he cried out, and two men were called off the street to help with the pulling. They were instructed to hold my father by the, by the wrist, by the waist while the doctor grabbed him by the, the wrist of the broken arm and shouted, Pull, men, pull! Pull as hard as you can! The pain must have been excruciating. The victim screamed, and his mother, who was watching the performance in horror, shouted, Stop! But by then, the pullers had done so much damage that a splinter of bone was sticking out through the skin of the forearm. This was 1877, and orthopedic surgery was not what it is today. 1877? Mm. That's even longer. It is. You're right. I'm not sure he even saw that. No, you didn't. Why did that happen, Dad? It was a mistake, wasn't it? An accident. Why did bone come out? Because he broke his arm and then they pulled on it hard. Why they pulled on it hard? They made a mistake. They did the wrong thing. Why did the, why the, why the doctor want them to pull on it hard? The doctor was drunk. What's drunk mean? Drunk means that you don't know what you're doing because you've had too much wine. Mm. Okay. Uh, uh, you would know what you're doing because you don't drink too much wine. That's right. I don't drink too much wine. Because wine is a very good. It's junk food. Uh, wine is a kind of junk food, yes. Yeah, so... Uh, so you only have a little bit at a time when you're an adult. Yeah. He has too much at the time. He did have too much. Then he made that bad mistake. Uh, I bet he... I bet, who's that guy? We'll find out. Let's keep reading. This was 1877 and orthopedic surgery was not what it is today. So they simply amputated the arm at the elbow. Oh. And for the rest of his life, my father had to manage with one arm. Fortunately, it was, fortunately, it was the left arm that he lost. And gradually, over the years, 
He taught himself to do more or less anything he wanted with just the four fingers and thumb of his right hand. He could tie a shoelace as quickly as you or I and... Why did a doctor want them to pull her on his, on his, on his, on his finger? They made a bad mistake because they were drunk. Why? It was an accident. No. It's a very bad accident, isn't it? Yeah, he lost his arm. It is sad. Okay. Would you like to hear more of the story? Okay. Fortunately, it was the left arm that he lost, and gradually, over the years, he taught himself to do more or less anything that he wanted to do with just the four fingers and thumb of his right hand. Did he could, that come out? He could tie a shoelace as quickly as, as you or me. Yes, blood came out. He could tie a shoelace as quickly as you or me. Right. And for cutting up the food on his plate, he sharpened the bottom edge of a fork so that, he, so that it served as both knife and fork all at once. He kept his ingenious instrument in a slim leather case and carried it in his pocket wherever he wanted. The loss of his arm, he used to say, caused him only one serious inconvenience. He found it impossible. I don't want that to happen. No, we don't want that to happen, do we? We'll, we'll be careful. We won't climb up on the roof. He found it impossible to cut the top off a boiled egg. My father was a year or so older than his brother Oscar, but they were exceptionally close, and soon after they left school, they decided they went for a long walk together to plan their future. They decided that a small town like Sarpsborg in a small country like Norway was, n was no place in which to make a fortune. So what they must do, they agreed, was go away to one of the big countries, either England or France, where opportunities to make good would be boundless. Their own father, an amiable giant of nearly seven foot tall, lacked the drive and ambition of his sons, and he refused to support this tomfool idea. When he forbade them to go, they ran away from home, and somehow or other the two of them managed to work their way to France on a cargo ship. From Calais they went to Paris, and in Paris they agreed to separate because each of them wished to be independent of the other. Uncle Oscar, for some reason, headed west for La Rochelle on the Atlantic coast, while my father remained in Paris for the time being. The story of how these two brothers each started a totally separate business in different countries and how each of them made a fortune is interesting, but there is no time to tell it here except in the briefest manner. Take my Uncle Oscar first. La Rochelle was then, and still is, a fishing port. By the time he was 40, he had become the wealthiest man in town. He owned a fleet of trawlers called Pêcheurs d'Atlantique and a large canning factory to can the sardines that his trawlers brought in. He acquired a wife from a good family and a magnificent townhouse, as well as a large chateau in the country. He became, he became a collector of Louis XV furniture, good pictures and rare books, and all these beautiful things together with the two properties are still in the family. I have not seen the chateau in the country, but I was in the La Rochelle house a couple of years ago, and it really is something. The furniture alone should be in a museum. While Uncle, Uncle Oscar was bustling around in La Rochelle, his one-armed brother, Harold, my own father, was not sitting on his rump doing nothing. He had met in Paris another young Norwegian called Adnison, and the two of them now decided to form a partnership and become shipbrokers. Shipbrokers. A shipbroker is a person who supplies a ship with everything that it needs when it comes into port. 
fuel and food, ropes and paint, soap and towels, hammers and nails, and thousands of other tiddly little items. A shipbroker is a kind of enormous shipkeeper for ships. Sorry, a shipbroker is a, is a kind of enormous shopkeeper for ships. And by far the most important thing he supplies to them is the fuel on which the ship's engines run. In those days, fuel meant only one thing. It meant coal. There were no oil burning motor ships on the high seas at that time. All, all ships were steamships, and these old steamers would take on hundreds and often thousands of tons of coal in one go. To shipbrokers, coal was black gold. Bye, Michelle. My father and his newfound friend, Mr. Adnison, understood this all too well. It made sense, they told each other, to set up their shipbroking business in one of the great coaling ports of Europe. Which was it to be? The answer was simple. The greatest coaling port in the world at that time was Cardiff in South, in South Wales. So off to Cardiff they went. These two ambitious young men, carrying with them little or no luggage. But my father had something more delightful than luggage. He had a wife, a young French girl named Marie, whom he had married in Paris. In Cardiff, the shipbroking firm of Adnison and Dahl was set up, and a single room in Butte Street was rented as an office. From then on, we, we have what sounds like one of those exaggerated fairy stories of success. But in reality, it was the result of tremendous hard and brainy work by these two friends. Very soon, Adnison and Dahl had more business than the partners could handle alone. Larger office space was required and more staff were engaged. The real money then began rolling in. Within a few years, my father was able to buy a fine house in the village of Landauf, just outside Cardiff, and there his wife Marie bore him two children, a girl and a boy. But tragically, shh, but tragically she died after giving birth to the second child. When the shock and sorrow of her death had begun to subside a little, my father suddenly realised that his two small children ought to at least have a stepmother to care for them. What is more, he felt terribly lonely. It was quite obvious that he must try to find another wife. But this was easier said than done for a Norwegian living in South Wales who didn't know very many people. So he decided to take a holiday and travel back to his own country, Norway, and who knows, he might, if he was lucky, find himself a lovely new bride in his own old country. Over in Norway, during the summer of 1911, while taking a trip on the small coastal steamer in the Oldsfjord, he met a young lady called Sophie Magdalene Hesselberg. Being a fellow who knew a good thing when he saw one, he proposed to her within a week and married her soon after that. Harold Dahl took his Norwegian wife on a honeymoon in Paris and after that back at the house in Landauf. The two of them were deeply in love and blissfully happy and during the next six years she bore him four children, a girl, another girl, a boy, me and a third girl. There were now six children in the family, two by my father's first wife and four by his second. A larger and grander house was needed and the money was there to buy it. So in 1918, when I was two, we all moved into an imposing country mansion beside the village of Radair, about eight miles west of Cardiff. I remember it as a mighty house with turrets on its roof and majestic lawns and terraces all around. There were many acres of farm and woodland and a number of cottages for the staff. 
Very soon, the meadows were full of milking cows, and the styes were full of pigs, and the chicken run was full of chickens. There were several massive shire horses for pulling the ploughs and the hay wagons, and there was a ploughman and a cowman, and a couple of gardeners, and all manner of servants in the house itself. Like his brother Oscar in La Rochelle, Harold Dahl had made it in no uncertain manner. But what interests me most of all about these two brothers, Harold and Oscar, is this. Although they came from a, a simple, unsophisticated small-town family, both of them, quite independently of one another, developed a powerful interest in beautiful things. As soon as they could afford it, they began to fill their house with lovely paintings and fine furniture. In addition to that, my father became an expert gardener and, above all, a collector of alpine plants. My mother used to tell me how the two of them would go on, ex on expeditions up to the mountains of Norway and how he would frighten her to death by climbing one-handed up steep cliff faces to reach small alpine plants growing high up on some rock ledge. He was also an accomplished wood carver, and most of the mirror fame and most of the mirror frames in the house were his own work. So indeed, so indeed was the entire mantel place around the fireplace in the living room, a splendid design of fruit and foliage and intertwining branches carved in oak. He was a tremendous diary writer. I still have one of his many notebooks from the Great War of 1914 to 18. Every single day during those five years, he would write several pages of comments and observations about the events of the time. He wrote with a pen, and although Norwegian was his mother tongue, he always wrote his diaries in perfect English. He harbored a curious theory about how to develop a sense of beauty in the, in the minds of children. Every time my mother became pregnant, he would wait until the last three months of her pregnancy and then would announce to her that the glorious walks must begin. These glorious walks consisted of him taking her to places of great beauty in the countryside and walking, and walking with her for about half an, for an hour each day so that she could absorb the splendor of her surroundings. The theory was that if the, the eye of a pregnant woman was constantly observing the beauty of nature, this beauty would somehow be transmitted to the mind of the unborn baby within her womb, and that baby would grow up to be a lover of beautiful things. This was the treatment that all her children received before they were born. The end. Wait, is that the whole book? No, that's the first chapter. But that's pretty boring. 